We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome program Caregiver Dave, Miss Annie Dave. What's up, man? How are you? How you doing? Just got back from Philadelphia. Wasn't too far from you. Yeah, five hours. That was Dr. Oz. Had a great, great time. He's running for the Senate. He's going to save this country. <laughs> and so I thought he would be the perfect person to run this country because he would make yes. it healthy. Keep yes. us healthy. And that's the thing. And he's well-loved. Everybody will vote for him. I don't know about that, Dave, but you can. Emily, you like Dr. Oz, don't you? <laughs> that's funny, girl. I love Dr. Oz. I just See, learned so much about Dr. him. Oz. <laughs> Absolutely. And so our guest today is Emily Aguilar. And she's going to talk about Breeze Bake Off Challenge. But I want to hear about her career as a director and how it all started. Emily, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm good. Thank you, Neil and Dave, for having me. Bree's Bake Off Challenge is my third feature that I wrote and directed, and it is a complete independent production movie, and it got picked up by a major studio platform, HBO Max, and believe it or not, this movie took me five years to complete, uh, from writing it in 2017 to you know, now in 2022. So it's been, it's been a journey. I will say that. <laughs> so let's just jump about the journey. That's great. I always, always excited about talking about project, but we want to know about, did you always want to be an entertainment director? Was that the thing that you liked or did you want to act too? How did that all start? I definitely got into acting in my teenage years and I started producing my own content. So I got an agent and everything. And my agent actually started treating me like a product. You know, that's basically the acting industry. And I didn't like it. (laughs) And so the advice that I was given was, hey, you need to produce your own content if you want to get meaningful roles. As a Latin woman, I would get either waitress or, you know, Latin little kid running around, you know, like things like that as, as a teenager. And so my um, my advice was was that like just hey like produce your own content. So I started producing and I started becoming known as a producer. And I got into film school. I went to Loyola Marymount University in LA. And this is just crazy. They were like, you need to direct and write a short film because it's part of the curriculum. And honestly, I was like, no, I don't write or direct. Like, I've never done that. Like, do I have to? And they were like, yeah, because you're a production major. And so at that point, I've never honestly produced for a woman and let alone like produce anything for myself. And it was a crazy experience, but that is truly when I fell in love with directing. And I also wrote and directed and produced it. And I just fell in love with it. And directing is honestly the best thing ever. Like my vision, whatever was in my brain came onto screen. So that's how that started. (laughs) Now you look like a teenager. How old were you when all this started? No worries. Were your parents supportive of all that? Yes. So I'm not afraid to tell you my age. I am currently, yeah, I'm currently 28. And when I filmed Breeze Bake Off Challenge, I was 24 years old. And I, that's, I filmed it at 24. How many filmmakers do you know that have made three features? So I think, yeah. (laughs) What makes, what was your secret sauce of being successful as a filmmaker? Just starting out, you know, where they discovered you in Loyal Marymount and just kept growing from there. What do you think that makes you, especially when you wanted to act, you always wanted to be in front of the camera, not behind the camera. What do you think, what are those essentials that are coming that you have? I think it's, it comes down to two things, which is what my parents taught me. One of them is hard work. You got to grind and you got to hustle. 
And I definitely don't take no for an answer. If someone tells me no, you just move on to the next. And I quickly learned that with acting, you know, it's a numbers game. You just have to keep going, going, going. And, you know, whatever happens, if one door closes, another opens. The other thing that I think is truly helpful is getting a really good support system. So I will say I am the youngest of four and um, I'm the youngest daughter, the youngest sibling. And so all my siblings, all my parents, my family members, they all really support me and even my friends. And if I do have a friend or someone that is like um, questioning what I do, I say, hey, I this is what I want to do. And can you please respect that? So I put those boundaries early on and like, this is what I want to do. And if like no one changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. You're very so, brave, very brave. Um, how do you overcome fear? Because a lot of people in the industry, you know, they're afraid. And here you are. Uh, Loyola Marymount is forcing you to uh, do something and you, well, I've never done that before. I'm sure you were afraid and you were fearful. Uh, how did you overcome that fear? Because that's the thing that sabotages most people trying to get in this industry. Yes. How do you overcome fear? You just do it anyways. I was so <laughs> do it afraid. You do it afraid, literally. And it's kind of like, I love that phrase, like fearless. The fear is still there, but you fear less and you wow. do it anyways. So when I'm actually from the East Coast, um, from Virginia, so not too far from you guys. And I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 by myself. I'm in LA now. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you're fine. <laughs> I know where Loyola is. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, so moving to LA by myself at 18 years old was a humongous shock to my family. I mean, everyone went to school out here on the East Coast. Yeah. And I, the youngest one said, hey, I'm going to go to California. And they really just supported me. They all flew me out there and dropped me off, you know, <laughs> and and supported me. And to this day, they're still really big supporters. And, you know, that big, um, your circle, like your close circle of friends need to be supportive because this is really hard. Filmmaking is really difficult. And you guys are entertainers and entrepreneurs. Like, you know, the hustle. It's yeah. all intertwined with all of that. So <laughs> no, you, you're, you're right about that. And then there's ups and downs in the entrepreneurship business owner. It's basically some days are great. Other days are horrible. And a lot of people that are not in an industry like you, yours and mine, they don't get it. They don't yeah. understand it. They don't understand, well, why just have a good job and know what's predicted and deal with the grind and that's it. Well, we just want something more. We want something that makes us passionate and also what makes us uh, know there's a challenge ahead every day. So when you talk about your two first films, yes. what makes three take off more? What do you think? Because I know there, every one of the, every film we create, every interview we do, every project, every book we write, as they've written all these books, written an article, we say, hey, we love that about the same, but one takes off. So tell me, you know, specifically, what do you think was the difference? Or do you think it's now what you're known if you would have been known before, those could have taken off as well to the level of three. Oh my gosh, there is a humongous difference. So my first two films were shoestring and I, it was one of those things where I was super scared to even like embark on a feature film. Like a feature film is a really big deal. And again, I got pushed by my family and my friends and, you know, my mentors to do it. And I did it with as little resources as possible. Like shoestring budget films is exactly that. Like just imagine a shoestring and like <laughs> whatever you have, you just make your movie. And so my first two 
just because of the circumstances and the things that had happened, I shot them back to back and I was able to sell the both of them. And it was honestly, both of those were experimental and I did the best that I could. I had just graduated film school. I was 22 when I had filmed those and um, I sold them like at 23 and that was a humongous learning experience. And so a year after that, in 2017, I was like, no, let me do this properly. Let me actually like, now that I know how to make it and produce it and also sell it, let me, let me see what I can do. And so Breeze Bake Off Challenge came about because I love baking shows and cooking and, and things like that. But I also wanted to create something really positive because I knew that family movies are something that isn't always um, made all the time by indie uh, producers. Uh-huh. So I created this character, Brie, and she's competing in a bake-off challenge at her school. It's a very wholesome family movie. And yeah, the way it came about, I just, it, it like, I did everything that you should in a way. And by that, let me explain, like, I wrote the script and then I had a bunch of people read it. I had actually a friend that writes for Disney read it and gave me feedback. Like I did, I got the feedback and getting feedback is really scary actually. Cause you know, really scary, yeah. they're criticizing your work. And then um, I did that. And then for pre-production, I actually thought it was going to be a shoestring thing again. Like it was just going to be me and like less than 10 person crew. And the more that I talked about it, the more that I shared the project, the more people got involved and, it, honestly, thinking back, I don't know how this happens, like a miracle, but like by the end of the day, we had over 100 people uh, on set and in the crew and just partake in the making of this thing. <laughs> you know, you're very fortunate. There are people in the industry working for 10, 15, 20 years who don't have the success that you have. How do you how do you account for getting out of film school and then, you know, doing one project and selling, doing another one? I mean, people talk about, oh, look at you, you're an overnight success. Well, it did take five years. No one is an overnight success. What's your secret? What do you think did it? You were in the right place at the right time. You're good looking. I mean, what is it? Um, Obviously, you're talented. Honestly, for Breeze Bake Off Challenge, it was planned. So when I... When I made the, my first two, I made the plan. Did I know it was going to take five years? Absolutely not. But I knew I was like, I'm going to make a family comedy film. I'm going to include these positive things that I really want to incorporate. And I'm going to try my best to get, you know, a bunch of things to make it as high quality as possible. And I aimed really, really, really high, like super high. And, you know, reality strikes. And then I basically like it is what it is. Like what you see is what I came up <laughs> with. And for anyone listening that's like an entrepreneur, filmmaker, creator, artist of any sort, honestly, the biggest thing that I've learned in the past 10 years, because, you know, I moved to L.A. when I was 18 and I'm 28 now. So Uh 10 years, this 10 year journey has been it's been interesting. Um, I would honestly say that you have to go for it. And I'm going to say this other thing, too, actually, that I actually I'm going to I don't really talk about it, but I will with you guys. My mindset is that I don't know if I'm going to live, you know, next year or like we don't know how much time we have on this earth. Yeah. And I I'm a I'm a now kind of girl. Like if I want to do something like what what can I do to get it done now? Because I just um, I don't know if it's from like. I don't know where I got that mindset, honestly. I think maybe my family or my parents, I don't know. But they've always instilled like, now is the time, the time is now. And um, in the movie, instead of now, we say meow. So the time is meow. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I, will, I mean, I think that that's the greatest point is you consider yourself an entrepreneur. You created, you've helped, you know, get this funded. You understand all these different nuances to this process. So now let's talk about Bree's Bake Off Challenge. <laughs> Tell us about it. Yes. Bree's Bake Off Challenge, it's a family comedy. So if there are family members listening and with kids and loved ones, the whole family can watch from home on their wonderful couch with popcorn and, you know, a cocktail or not. And um, it's about Brie. So Brie is an aspiring 12-year-old baker, and she hears of the spring bake-off happening at her school, and she wants to do everything she can to win first place. But then she's faced with her arch nemesis slash bully, Vanessa. And so the two of them basically go head to head. They go at it. It's a battle of the cake mixes, if you will. And um, it's super fun. I mean, the the cast, um, we we actually, this is also a surprise. We actually got over 500 submissions um, for our indie film. And that was a shock because, you know, me and my producers were like, oh, you know, we'll we'll see what we can get kind of thing. But you know, the word just spread. And I had people from LA and New York and even Florida want to fly down to, to shoot oh. with us. So um, oh. Breeze Bake Off Challenge is definitely the new fun family comedy film that I would love families to get together and watch. It's super fun. And I don't know, I think it's cute. <laughs> Were there ever any dark moments? Did you ever feel like quitting? Oh, yes. I yes. Today she moved to 18 years old. I mean, come on now. <laughs> you know, starting out in these little roles and seeing these different things. And finally, opportunity comes. We all have dark moments today. Especially I just want people to understand that, that it's normal, you know, to go through it. But you persevered. You don't give up. So Some people give up. No. And also, too, so we shot, we shot it in June of 2018. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> And the pandemic honestly slowed everything down and it was really difficult. I, I honestly thought of selling a body part at one point to get this movie done. You know, it was really hard. I didn't, don't worry. But, um, but you know, those dark like thoughts and just insecurities definitely came over me. And, but when the pandemic happened, that was 2020. And that was already three years after the movie was shot. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I need to finish this. How do I finish this? That's and the point of no return. Yeah, exactly. And luckily, um, you know, I think with the help of just my network and the people that I've been able to work with in LA, um, I, you know, one by one day at a time, we were able to pull our resources together and get it done. And, you know, a miracle happened on one day. Like I looked at the timeline, it was 100 minutes and it was done. Wow. And so, how did you get? distribution with hbo max for an independent that's not much that's not very known right especially for hbo max i mean you're seeing it sometimes on netflix and amazon but not as much on hbo max right no it is definitely rare um i will say it was it's with all the companies and pitching your own film to sell, I will say that it's it's nerve wracking because I have to all of a sudden like go from writer director to businesswoman. I have to pitch myself in the movie, and you know it's a whole different kind of mindset with that. And you have to think. And, and of, you do a great job, by the way. Thank you, thank you, Patrick. <laughs> and don't forget, the Academy um, Awards really gave you a shot in the arm when when Will Smith's uh, movie, which was an independent. 
you know, and now it's like, uh, okay, mainstream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, with HBO Max, honestly, I it I did a whole bunch of cold calls, cold emails, network, network. Hey, who do you know? Hey, can you do this? Hey, this is what I have. And one thing led to another. And um, and yeah, and it landed on HBO Max. So it wasn't yeah. one of those like it was really it was truly like yeah. like a surprise. <laughs> so what's well, exciting? Are, right? you gonna, are you going to stay as a director or are you going to want to act still? as well oh no so i um i'm definitely going to keep directing i have my next three features lined up like script writing wise i just i know what i want to do next and i've laid it out and you know i have my plan um in acting acting wise i've been asked to act a little bit and i may toy with it in a short film first it's actually been a while since i've acted um honestly i feel like eight years eight to ten years (laughs) because um i really started directing eight years ago so um, you may see me on screen, and if you do, then it's my own script, though. So it'll be so. <laughs> kind of like Tyler Perry, right? Tyler Perry throws himself in certain things at times and other things not when he's directing, even though you know he has, where he's an actor, too. Some films, is just Tyler Perry behind the camera. So I don't yeah. I never know what's going to happen. You build your own production company like Tyler Perry, you can do whatever you want, right? Yeah, yeah, but, and that's a beauty. Mm-hmm. And especially... As a Latina, you see it as a huge opportunity, right? You see it as, well, now are you, with Breeze Breakout Challenge, do you see yourself, how are you carrying that for Latina directors? How do you see yourself now? Where do you want to see yourself as an entrepreneur in everything? Where do you see yourself going? Oh my gosh. So the beauty with filmmaking is that you, I can really go anywhere. So directing and winning winning an academy award that's happening basically i'm just gonna put that out there in the future i don't know how long that's gonna take and you know which script per se but you know that's in my in my future <laughs> i'm just putting it out there so that's pretty impressive dave we've had a lot of actors and directors that have not put out academy award i think she's gonna get it I believe that. I see. You gotta see yeah. it to believe you know, it. I had, I had, <laughs> so it was interesting. I wouldn't have predicted if I looked at one of the biggest stars that was a semi-known celebrity oh. and then became really big would be Tiffany Haddish. She was on my show before before that happened. And, and then I even look at uh, Jasmine Brown was on my show before. Now Jasmine, you know, was in the Scream movie. So there's just different people out there that, oh my God. Well, you know, they were they had a break it was pretty decent and then bam so you but if you have that mindset it's going to happen all right dave has a caregiving question and i have a feeling that emily at one point uh has dealt with this or knows of somebody dealing with this go have your question Dave. yeah i'm excited for you and i'm excited for the film that's coming out uh, about me because that will with that will smith moment was a big one um <laughs> i became a caregiver just when i was minding my own business 25 years ago, my wife had the headache, turned mm-hmm. into a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed mm-hmm. on one side. And, you know, for a couple of years, we didn't know if we were going to make it. You know, we didn't know if we were going to stay together. Uh, she was very angry and, and going through grief. And then finally, you know, we just um, came to uh, an awareness that uh, you deal, you play the cards you're dealt. And she said, if I'm still alive, God must be not finished with me yet. So she became her old self again, and our love was rekindled. And I started going on television and speaking on stages. Uh, I'm writing my fourth book now about how caregivers could stay alive because the stress kills them. 
Um, I believe everyone is going to become a caregiver eventually. You're going to become one. You're going to need one. I started caregiverdave.com to help caregivers get through it. Has caregiving touched your life? And do you know anybody who is um, giving care to anybody? Have you given care to anybody? Absolutely. So being the youngest of four and just we, we're a big Latin family, um, we always take care of each other. And my older siblings have definitely been somewhat of another mom to me. <laughs> so I, have, I say I always say that I have three moms because they're always just, you know, like, have you eaten? Have you done this? <laughs> and um, nowadays, my, my grandma is getting um, in her 80s. I think she's turning 78. Um, and, you know, we all have to help and care give and just give whatever we can and that is one of the reasons like with the pandemic and everything um i fly back and forth between la and dc now because that's where my family is and mm. family is really really important to me and seeing my parents and luckily um my parents are healthy but you know we we definitely help each other yeah. in every way that we can and we have to you know it's like sure. it's the family yeah. so caregiving is definitely really yes exactly. yeah yeah, don't ever change. Good for you. Uh, Emily, so Bree's yeah. Bake Off Challenge is available now on HBO Max? It is. It is. We've got Emily. Are they going to play it on the HBO channels as well or just Max? Or they will yes, yes. They will, they will eventually put it on channels. Um, but yeah, right now it's on, it's on HBO Max. And yeah, we're working on the international forefront as well. So that is all coming. It's more to come. I already so, know. Yes. You, uh, we're going to see an Academy Award for you someday. And I'll, hopefully, I'll be on the red carpet. <laughs> hey, by the way, because that's the goal of mine now is I'm going to be hopefully covering the big, big events as I continue. As yes. number, I'm the top 12 celebrity podcaster in the world, according to Feedspot. One from Absolutely 16 amazing. to 12 in a year. So I keep getting major celebrities ranked above other people. So I'm, I'm in that same trajectory as yours, but you're doing such an amazing thing and, and we appreciate you coming on. And so work me follow you. Are you on social media? People check. Yes, it. I am. You can find me on Instagram, but also TikTok, and it's the momentum. And I coined it with the word the momentum, but with an EM at the end. And you can find out, oh, there you go. See the momentum. I see it. You're um, very good at branding too. That's how thanks. you have a deal. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we yeah, think about these things. <laughs> right, appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank Emma. you so, so much. I had a great time. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. See you. Bye. All right. You're listening and watching the Caregiver Dave celebrity segment, and we'll be back in just we're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome program Caregiver Dave, Miss Annie. Dave, what's going on, man? Hey, just living the good life, you know? Don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but it's good stuff. No, no, see, we're not talking. We're going to, tomorrow's going to bring even better stuff. That's how we're going to look at things, and we're going to manifest that right now. But my guest today is Tanya Christensen. She's going to talk about the mulligan, but I want to learn about her acting career and different things like that. We were talking off air about, you know, golfing and stuff, and maybe she gave me an idea. As my again, one of my number one talent is ideation. Maybe I should see if you know my clients that I'm looking to attract are on the golf course. Let's just see, and we'll find out. Tanya, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hi, I'm I'm wonderful. I really appreciate you having me this evening. It's a treat to be invited. Exactly. No, it's kind of funny when you talk about golf. One of my now focuses, I'm going to work more with sports professionals, former sports athletes. And I'm sure they all golf. So maybe you've already come up with something. And maybe I need to be hitting some golf balls right after this interview. So let's kind of talk about specifically enough your career. Did you always want to be an actor? Uh, yes. Ever since, you know, when you're a, a, a little teeny tot and people always say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's I think it's the number one question that adults ask children. And it was always 
I'm going to be an actress. That's what I always said. And, and I started off little in community theater, um, you know, church plays, school plays, um, and I would just go for it and do it. And I had no reservations, wasn't shy at all. Um, slowed down a little bit in middle school because school plays turned into musicals and I can't sing and I wasn't in the mood to be, just be a tree. Um, and then it just picked back up again. I went to the University of Tennessee and when I graduated, I, well, I couldn't find a degree, first of all. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do because I always wanted to act, but I never, I never really thought I'd be able to do it, if that makes any sense. I lived in Tennessee. I, didn't ha I don't know anyone in the industry, so I, I was just my mom was like, just pick a major and get out. And then I, I finally graduated and I was looking through the paper because that's what you did back then. I'm a little, yeah. uh -huh, a little older. And it's, there was a little teeny ad and it said on air talent wanted. And I was like, huh, this could be good or this could be very, very bad, but yeah. I'm going to go ahead and make that phone call. And it was as uh, it was for a shopping network. And so I was a host for three years doing that. And that's kind of how it all started. And from there, I got an agent and did commercials and kind of went from there. You know what? I already can tell you that on air thing, you're, you're like a pitch person in a way. Right? <laughs> what were you selling on air doing that stuff? Uh, what wasn't I selling? I guess uh, we did. And I'm still doing it today. I still am. My, I'm a guest at HSN, the Home Shopping Network in St. Pete. Really? Okay. Yeah. So I do that. Um, I have a product that I do in the fall for, for that, a boot. But gosh, when I started, we did coins, collectible porcelain dolls, jewelry, exercise equipment, um, you name it. You know, there's, we, there's a lot of stuff that those things sell. So you name it, I, I sold it. And it was a really, it's not acting. Um, but it definitely got me comfortable in front of the camera, uh, learn how to place the body, learn how to speak kind of improv because it's not scripted. You have a couple of little bullet points, you know, the chain is 18 inches long. It's 14 karat gold and I'll sell it for 25. Right, minutes. right. Exactly. You know, so you kind of have to make up stories and ro ro romance it. So that's, that's kind of where it all started, I guess. See, I, I love, I love this when I'm hearing this, because again, this is something that, you know, you think about how you sell something and it's not voiceover because you're not doing voiceover work. You really have to provide a sense of acting to let them know you sell a product. I think voice acting and what you do in HSN is a totally different game. Can you define totally. that? Then I'll let Dave have another question. It just interests me always about that impromptu. You get on there, you got to tell a story. It's almost like you're creating the brand story of anyone that wishes they had your mindset. Meaning if you're selling a product or service, if you're trying to market a book or you're trying to do something, you have to tell a story and you have to make Absolutely. people want that product. So right. what do you think is the difference between a voice actor doing it and someone pitching something on HSN or one of the oh, shopping networks? They're, they're really just two different animals. I've also done voiceovers and voice acting. I've done a lot of infomercials for if you're ever in Italy and you hear this voice, I do, I do a lot of uh, infomercial voiceovers. Um, that's just totally different ball game. I've uh, done books as well. I've done things for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, a lot of voiceover work. But you're right, when you're responsible for a product, and now, because I'm a guest, I'm in charge of the product. I'm very much features and benefits. But when I was hosting, it was call to action. It was romancing. It was bringing bringing the customer into my living room. So I'm, yeah, I'm not pitching, pitching, pitching because that's gross. And every, it's kind of a turnoff. I, I want to 
tell you, and I will find, and I don't care what it is, I will find the good in every, in something. You know what I mean? Even if there's <laughs> so like that's, a little That's the skill set. Like when I interview so many people, 8,000 plus I've interviewed, Dave, or I don't have lost track, you know, each week it's a different amount. I've learned, you know, you're trying to carry a conversation. You're not to be the star. You're supposed Absolutely. to be entertaining. You got to ask the right question and you yes. got to move on. And that's what you do. And I'm like, well, that's the easiest interview. All right, Dave, I'll throw a question to you now. Uh, what do you want to ask Tanya before we get to the mulligan? Well, I'm assuming uh, if you're starring in a movie called Mulligan that you must know a lot about golf. Now, I don't know if Will Smith knew a lot about golf when he did Bagger Vance, but uh, tell me your story. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's interesting is I don't know a lot about golf. I, um, however, I, a long time ago, I'm going to say maybe eight years ago, I auditioned for this golf commercial. And, they, and then you had, I just, you had to dress the part. And they said, well, do you play golf? And I just go, who doesn't? <laughs> so I didn't, yeah. I didn't I like lie. I, I, go, I live in Florida. Who doesn't? And I booked <laughs> the job. And I was like, oh my gosh, my husband golfs. So I said, okay, all I need is a good swing. So we went and I, I worked and worked and worked until I got that good swing. So no, I don't know a lot about golf, but I, I am, I do find myself in certain situations. I become just a big sponge and I just sit and I just soak it up and I don't feel the need to be wrung out. I don't need to give anything back. So that's kind of what I, what I did during that commercial. And during the mulligan, it is heavy, heavy, heavy golf. We filmed in the Currahee Club in Tacoa, Georgia. And Currahee Club is a character in the movie in and of itself because it's so beautiful right. um, even if you don't golf go um but i wasn't i didn't golf in the movie so it's kind of interesting i'm not on the golf course i didn't golf that was for pat boone and eric uh, close who plays my husband um uh paul McAllister in the movie so it, it's rather interesting when they were doing all the golf scenes i was actually running the golf paths because i'm a runner so i would run the course that i can do yeah, um, that's a good golfer, isn't he? Okay, so oh, he's great. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, wow. he and Eric are both amazing. I've had Pat amazing. on my show, and I interviewed Debbie a couple months ago. So, and it was interesting oh. to talk to Debbie. She was oh, what a delight she was, uh, for sure. Uh, and she, I, I ended up only doing it for radio because she says, "Well, I'm not doing Zoom." I said, "Well, I take time to prepare." I said, "Okay, Debbie, another time you have to come on the TV show." <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of jump into the mulligan, your character, a little bit more in depth. First, the, the premise and the character. And I'm sure I want to go back to some of your other acting experiences as well, because you're just, you're a delight. You're exactly the easiest ones to interview because you know how to be on camera. You know how to be on, to have a conversation with somebody. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. This is, this is something where we can take the day off, Dave, and just let Tommy <laughs> talk the whole time. Go ahead. That's a, that is actually a compliment. And I, I, sometimes I will do something and someone says you, it's not scripted or you make it seem easy. And it's just, that's the biggest compliment to me. So thank you very much. You're um, I'll stumble. Well, we, we just started, but um, let's see, what is the mulligan about? It, it is, well, a golf term, it's a golf term. I think it's over a hundred years old and it just simply means a do-over, to take a do-over, to have a second chance. And this movie is heavily faith-based. It's a Christian film. Oh. So they pull us in with, um, with, with the Curry Club and the beauty of golf. And if you're a golfer, you're going to love this because there's some cameos with um, Tom Lehman and, and a couple of others are in there. Um, what was that, a kitten? 
No, that was my squeaky chair. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, let me see, let me see your cat. Um, uh, so, so it's heavy in golf, but then the term the mulligan is is a do over, and it's a again, it's a faith based movie. How we all need a do over, and mm. truly, all you have to do is ask. If you're a believer and you just say, I, "Lord, I need a second chance," guess what you get? You get a second chance. So that's what the movie is about. I'm so glad it's a faith based movie. There's not enough of those. And- I agree. And good for Pat. Enough good ones, you know? Yeah, They're out yeah. there, but and see, and really then, good then, ones. Because we're seeing a split in audiences and what people want to watch and what people don't want to watch. There's always going to be an audience for something. And I think yeah, that's done well. Yeah. Faith, faith, that faith base is known. There's an audience that wants to see these kinds of films. And I think that the point, I guess, in this is you, you relate golf with that mistake. And there you go. And your, your character... How did you prepare for this character? Because as an actor, you know all the time you got to prepare for a character. Once you got the role, how did you prepare? It's interesting because I I booked this. uh, Okay, we filmed it a year ago and I booked it right before the world shut down and went into quarantine. And we didn't know what was going on. It was kind of weird out there, but it still wasn't, it was nothing to to what it was. It was just kind of weird. So I got the sides and the sides are basically your audition lines the scene mm-hmm. uh, but I never got the script and I, I I had to kind of read between the lines to kind of see what this is about so I auditioned and then I got a director session with the director Michael Seibel the producer Rick Eldridge and also the casting director Mark Van Cannon was there and I went in and I did my thing and I did what I could do and then I left and I was just you know I kind of threw it out there and I said this this could be a really good one you know and then maybe three four days later I found out I booked it so excited and then the world shut down and I thought darn it you know and they pushed it a month then they pushed it forward then they pushed it and I never heard anything and I thought this is what happens movies lose their funding the stars Pat Boone Eric Close have other projects they're very very busy men uh, and actors and they Pat's got his hand in everything whether he's you know songwriting or whatever so but then it happened and they called me and they said we're ready to go um and I still didn't have the script till about four days until I left for Georgia. So the preparation happened fast, but I really, in those four scenes that I was given for the audition, I could, I could feel who she was. I could tell that she was a woman. She was a very strong woman that's right. rich in her faith. Uh, one scene was with her husband and um, there's some tension there. So I knew how to do that. I've been married 22 years. I, I know how to do, I know how to do tension. Um, <laughs> There was redemption and, and coming back together. That's just beautiful to do. And, and, and then there was some interesting dynamics with my son as well. And I'm a mother of two children. So it, it, it also, I have to say, when something is not written well, I, I can't get it. I can't get the words. I, I have a hard time with it. This, I, I had it down like, like that because it's just beautifully written and very relatable. So it was kind of easy to jump right into. That's great. And the people who are fat fans of Pat Boone, love golf, they got to go see the film. Now I want to go back, Tanya. And what you would never know it's a faith-based film by the, by the title, which is very clever. Yes, it's true. Well, all, of them, all of them are starting that way, but they're not trying to trick. There is an audience. And that's the yes. thing. It's like, there's an audience for HSN, right? Not everyone yeah. watches HSN. Not everyone. There's audiences for everything. And I everything. think what's happened, what's happened is if you have an idea, and you really want to put the work in and you want to understand it and you want to build a tribe or community, you can 
be very prosperous in whatever you do. And that's why a lot of people aren't going to work anymore. They found out their passion and they're not going to go back to work. So we'll have to find out what our country becomes. Everyone is pitching something, right? (laughs) So Tanya, what would you say of of the films you were most fond of or acting experiences you were most fond of? Because you know, you were involved a lot with it, you know, working in, in the field of that. But what about in acting? Films that like you say, you know, this was an experience that really was my best. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm typical, typical, I guess, as a lot of actors are. Um, very, very critical. Um, I just see my work a little differently. I'm like, oh, it's hard. But that's normal. I guess something you just have to deal with. But I think, I think what it comes down to is maybe not necessarily the project, but if this one's different, the Mulligan's different, I'm so proud of it. And, and it's just so beautiful. But a lot of times it's not necessarily like, whoa, that's a life changer. It's the people that I'm surrounded by. If I have a great, beautiful script and I, it is just gross. To, it, I'm just surrounded by grossness. I don't want anything to do with it. I just, I, I come to do my job and I'm out of there. Um, but there are things like even just a little bit of, of television, um, you know, that I've done, it's just the people that, that that are there. It's the professionals. It's the, the leads of the show come up and actually talk to me instead of just, I've been dismissed many, many times. I've been a guest star on a lot of television. I'm not, it's just like, I don't know, you know, a hello would be nice. Um, And then sometimes you're just, you're just welcomed and it's part of the family. And that's actually with the Mulligan, we all came together to do a job and we left as a family. They're great. And so you'll, you'll see what those different opportunities come, but I, I can tell what you really love is still the being on TV, right? Doing the stuff with I, HSN and all that. I do. I, I, I love, um, I love being on HSN. That's just fun because you just, you know, again, you're talking right into a little camera, but you know, you're speaking, I think there are 90 million homes or something. So that's so it's fun. Crazy. And, and, the, and the products they're going to sell. Because people, yeah. so if you have a great product or service to sell, what's your what's your tip on getting on HSN? Oh, <laughs> now that I get asked that a lot, you know, there are, um, and I used to maybe wouldn't be able to figure it out because we used to actually go into the studios, um, and I kind of it, it, it's a it's a campus, it's a it's a world in and of itself. But now since quarantine, I just do it, and I have a an audition room, kind of like this is in my closet, but I have an audition room, and I just set up. And I have a little backdrop and I Skype my show right in. So those relationships and it's have changed a little bit. I don't, I don't know. I guess you just have to send an email. I don't know how you get a product on there. We're going to right? <laughs> no, which one's you that? know, I met the guy that does the ring doorbell. Really? Uh, oh, he wow. was in my training class. Wow. So he went to Shark Tank and then he got it on HSN. So I guess if it's good so, enough. So look at me. Oh, see, I'm already pitching. So that's it, guys. <laughs> You have a product service, go to HSN. And maybe you never know, Tanya, that's another uh, story that you can bring to the table. I think you should have a podcast just on HSN stories and stuff. That'd be interesting. You should write a movie. Or, or write a book. Or write a book or a movie. Yeah. I mean, a little spoof or something. But I do love it. I, I have to say my kind of my favorite genre is, uh, or it's medium, I should say. I do love television so much. I love television. And that's kind of a goal of mine is to become you know, like a series regular on a TV show because you're doing a mini movie every week. Um, And then again, you get to know the DP, the director of photography, you know, the lady at crafty services and it becomes a second family because my family at home is getting smaller and smaller as my children are getting older. And I just, I love my work. No, you might might be working for Hallmark. 
They really. Oh, are- now see, that's Eric's. Um, I need to chat with him about that. I need to, okay, so here's my tip for you. Hallmark is once their kids grow up, the, the talented women go to Hallmark and work there. You either get your real estate license or you go work for Hallmark. Yeah, I'd love to be. I would love to be the mom on Hallmark and they need to hurry up or I'm going to be the grandma on Hallmark. So exactly. But someone's got to call me. All right. So Dave, Dave has a caregiver question. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I've been a caregiver for 25 years to my wife. She had a headache 25 years ago, lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And we struggled for a couple of years, almost broke up, but we hung in there and uh, I decided I'm going to be Dave, the caregiver's caregiver, help other caregivers not Mm -hmm. make the same mistakes I did. So I made a lot of them. And my wife decided she was going to do everything she did before. She was like a Martha Stewart, Wonder Woman all rolled into one. And, and she was definitely type A and, and she's accomplished her goal. She can do more than most normal people can do with both limbs. She does it with one arm and one leg tied behind her back. And so we've been on television and speaking on stages all across the country. And I'm just sharing my story about how uh, everyone needs to understand that caregiving is on the horizon. It's the tsunami coming. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're either going to become one, you're going to need one. So now's the time to learn how to do it. So you're not like me trying scratching your head, trying to figure out what happened, you know, uh, has caregiving been in your life? I mean, I started a website, caregiverdave.com, just to help people prepare for it. It's an online support group for caregivers and for those who are not yet. Mm-hmm. How has caregiving touched your life? That's that's a beautiful story. That's amazing. Um, I, actually, that, that is beautiful. I, you know, me personally, n- not yet. But as you said, it is the tsunami. It is coming. You know, every day in America, Ten thousand people turn fifty-five or sixty-five years old. Um, my grandmother, though, I still I had my grandmother with me. She's ninety-two years old. Oh, so I, I, I know. I'm fortunate. Right. You know, not a lot of people can say that, but it's my my father's mother and my aunt, my father's sister takes takes care of her, and they live about three hours away. So whenever I can, I go up, and I just love to give my aunt the day off. For her birthday. So you're doing caregiving. That's caregiving. I I guess I guess so. I I, you know, I she is 24-7 and it's very difficult. My grandmother still has the mind that she can get up and go to the kitchen and she can't and she falls a lot. And it's so much on her. So whenever I can, I I I'll send her to the spa for the day and just sit with my grandmother and we have Olive Garden because it's her favorite. Oh, if only every caregiver had a friend like you. Oh, I, you know what? All they need, because when you're a, a lot of times caregivers, I, maybe there's some resentment and maybe um, it's hard, but a lot of times you're doing it out of love. If it's your spouse, if it's your parent, you're doing it because you made a promise or it's just something for you. you and um, I think if one person, if one sibling, if someone would just maybe once a month, once every other week, just say, why don't you go on a date with yourself or your husband or your girlfriend? It would recharge those batteries. Um, And that's not, that's not a lot, you know, just kind of giving someone the afternoon off. But it's unusual that you have the awareness and the ability to understand that. I think that's sad. That's unusual. Yeah, that's actually sad, isn't it? That that's unusual. That's, let's see, but Tanya has been on, very thoughtful uh, shopping and HSN and all those different shops. She has to learn th- their people's characteristics and when they would all call in, right? 
Maybe. Oh, you have to develop that relationship with the call-in. So I'm sure you've been in the different shows back in the day where, hey, someone else is calling in. We bought this thing and you had to come and tell a story. And, you know, well, you're definitely uh, in a very That's interesting. That's why people buy from you because you're interacting with them. You're, but she's heading to Hallmark. Family. So Tanya's heading to Hallmark next. <laughs> Eric. And see, I get this okay. idea. And then there you go. She's heading to Hallmark. So best place we can film Watch the mulligan. Where can we watch it? Okay, so um, right now, April eighteenth and nineteenth. So it's next oh, Monday and Tuesday, seven p.m. It's a it's a small showing. It's a phantom showing, and what you have to do is go to themulliganmovie.com and you just simply type in your zip code, and then it tells you all the places where it's playing. It's over a thousand theaters in the country. I think it's mostly AMC and Regal theaters, um, but it is a small showing because it's. You know, it, it just that's what happens as a Christian film, small showing. We're not Marvel, right? No, and and if, it's, if, it's it's just as expensive to get something in the theaters as it is to make the movie. So, if you can go out and support the film, and if we get sold out theaters, then they will extend it. And I think this is a movie that needs to be told. And we always just say, "Gosh, if just it changes one person, yeah. right? If it just changes exactly. one person and opens up someone's eyes, or maybe it'll be a connection between." Uh, a husband and a wife. Maybe they'll look at each yeah, other right. differently. Maybe he'll grab her hand in the movie if they're having marital mm-hmm. problems. Maybe it'll make the son kind of wake up and be nicer to his parents. Yeah. I don't know. If it just, maybe it'll turn, you know, someone can turn their life over to, to Christ. If it, Or maybe you just, you're, you're already there. You just want a wholesome family movie that you can take your grandma to. Yeah, you're going to love the mulligan. All right. Well, we appreciate there's a Regal Theater in our town that always runs these Christian films. Oh, go see it and tell me Very how you supportive. like it. All right. Well, All right. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Dave. See you guys. Appreciate it. And you can follow you, Tanya, all places, right? On social media. I know you're oh, on. Oh, yeah. I'm on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. All right. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank Thanks, you. Bye. All right. Bye. Watching and listening to the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And I love interviewing authors. You know, I get the opportunity my whole life to get the opportunity to learn from so many new people all the time. And they, everyone has a great story. I'm excited to welcome program author Megan Smith Brooks, author of Unraveling Grief, how uh, a mother's spiritual journey of healing and discovery. Megan, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you, Neil. I'm delighted to be with you and to share with your audience. Absolutely. Let's kind of, you know, get into this process of what made you want to write this book? Uh, because the, you know, we have these missions in life and we do these things, but then the work that it takes to write a book is not an easy task, especially if it's involving something that has pain involved in it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it was part of my healing process. I didn't know it at the time, but there was a point, um, it's based on the story of my adult son, Justin, who was murdered in 2013. And in my healing journey um, and processing my grief, I realized that I've learned a lot and I had something to share that could be of value to others. And it it became a place where I had to write it. I needed to do it for my own healing and it didn't matter who read it, but it had to be shared. And so it was kind of a birthing process for me. And in hindsight, I realized that it has made a difference and I've talked to a lot of people that have really wanted to write a book and it is a process and a commitment. And I had to just put myself in that space of letting it come forth. Oh, absolutely. You think about the, the amount of work to write a book and then people want to do it and you did, did this, but it took you time, right? 
from the grief process of losing your son in this horrific situation to finally writing the book and finally sharing the story? Oh, absolutely. Um, he was taken from us on May 30th, 2013, and it was finally February 2020 that I couldn't hold it back anymore. And and, and it's it feels ironic, but the process of writing the book, I did it through a writing retreat over a weekend, um, the foundation of my book, and then I took another 30 days to flesh it out and add what I wanted. And I was surprised that literally how quickly that book could come forth that to me was um, meaningful and that it was meant to be. When you talk about a writing retreat, what, what takes place at a writing retreat? Well, there's different forms. The one that I did um, had a spiritual context to it. I did it virtually over a three-day period. And so I created space in my home. I told my husband, um, pretend I'm not here. <laughs> I took over the lower level of our home. And the facilitator did it with um, going through some kind of clearing, getting, you know, your your head out of the situation, um, the left brain thinking of how this is going to work, and playing some soothing music, and in 15-minute increments over six hours, um, three days in a row, um, just downloading and writing without thinking, without stopping to organize it, and then you go back and organize the story in a way that emotionally it can connect with an audience. Wow. And I think that, that that had to be very heartbreaking for you to revisit that while writing the book in the retreat. Oh, you know, I have to say there were a lot of tears involved. Um, I had to go into a very deep and dark place emotionally um, to let that come through. And I hope that it came through in the words that, um, there's a courage that it takes to go into that place of, of heartache. But what I discovered is that if we don't do that, we can't truly heal and find a way to move forward. All right. And then and that's, that's the process. So once you went through the retreat, you wrote the book and tell us, you know, specifically enough what the whole book involves, because I think when you talk about unraveling grief, you are recovering and you're helping other people recover the same thing. If even if, during this time of COVID, think about when you wrote, wrote the book, that was the time of COVID, a lot of losses. You weren't mm -hmm. thinking about ultimately once you wrote the book that all this death and dying would be around us like this. Well, it was the beginning of it. And I did tap into it a bit in my book because I had this realization as I watched what was happening in the world around us, um, the, the lifestyle, the way that we had come to it expect the world to be was being dismantled. And I noticed how many people were uncomfortable. Of, if you didn't have a foundation of how to deal with change, especially unexpected change, it could really dismantle you and throw you into um, just a place of, of crisis. And, and I recognize that the pain of loss from a loved one is significant, but loss in any form of anything that has changed where we can't put it back in the same format affects us deeply. And so how do we process that? Um, how do we use it? And so my book is in two parts. The first part is my story. I really wanted to share my relationship with my son. I went back to the beginning because I recognized that, that through my life, I was building a foundation of how I was going to manage this deep and heart-wrenching grief. And that it, it supported me in um, finding a way through it. 
I was an ordained minister serving a spiritual community. So I had tools and practices I recognized others don't necessarily have. So the second part is, how could I share my understanding of what grief really is and that it serves a purpose in our human experience? That there is a, something we can discover about ourselves to enhance who we are because we've had this experience to move forward in a more profound way. And that itself is a hidden gift within grief. So that's where I led people through. Um, how can we use grief to find a way forward with meaning and purpose? Right. Using grief in a way to find a way forward with meaning and purpose is such an important thing. And I'm sure when you have gotten the opportunity to share the book with people and talk to other people that have gone through this grieving process, you knew as a minister already, but you had to learn some new life lessons from talking to other people, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. There's, it's different when you, you are supporting others in a crisis in life than walking through it yourself. So I recognized that I had to um, embrace this as my, my journey, use what I know, but I couldn't compare it to other people's grief stories. Um, and I recognized that we are uncomfortable talking about grief in our society, that we try to avoid it. We try to pretend it didn't happen, that other people didn't want to talk about what was going on and what was very real for me. And so encouraging people to find a way to process that helps us to not let it sabotage us or blindside us, and, but we have to be intentional about it. So I discovered that there were, there were some very basic things that could support us no matter what form of pain we're dealing with. And the first one was literally remembering to breathe because we don't always do that very well when something happens. It's like we go to that shallow place and we don't breathe in all that we need to sustain us. So a breathing practice just to help me process that intense pain was the beginning of moving forward. And what is your ultimate goal with the book? You know, it, it really was for me, it was personal. It was my healing process. I got to the place where I could not not write it. It needed to be brought forth. And if it could be useful to others to help them through the pain of loss in life, to walk them through that, to offer something of value, then I served my purpose. And I also realized that it's like I couldn't control who read it and how they interpreted it. I had to just let that part go. But I have to share a, a story. I have a, another son, my older son, um, who I sent, of course, a copy and he got it. And he said, you know, mom, I thought I'd go to bed one night and just start reading a couple chapters. And I couldn't put it down. And at four o'clock in the morning, I finished reading it after I was sobbing and I had my highlighter and I'm, um, I had no idea what your experience had been. And he said, I took a quote from your book and I put it on my desktop because I needed it. And what you said is, every day I get to choose how I will show up, who I want to be. And that has made a difference. And for me, that's why I wrote the book. It was for him. No, oh, that's, that's wonderful. And I think that because he had to go through a grief process too, right? 
losing as well. Oh, absolutely. And I have a chapter in my book on sibling grief because I realized that his process of grief was very different than mine. His relationship with his brother was different than my relationship with his brother as my son. And he also felt some kind of guilt or need that he had to take care of me and comfort me and discount his own. So I had to support him in recognizing um, to not push his grief aside, but to process it and maybe we could do it together in our own ways. Do you have some interesting stories to share that uh, people have written, read your book or that have gone, have really been able to deal with this grief better? Or like just without giving names of people that have been able to share in this process of you writing this book? Oh, absolutely. You know, people experience grief in different forms. You know, mine was from the murder of my son, though that's not the only grief experience I have had. Prior to my son's death, I'd lost my father and all my grandmothers and grandfathers. Um, my mother passed just this last October. I had a sister that took her life by suicide um, a year and a half ago. So grief continues to hit us. And so I've had people come to me um, that have lost a child by suicide um, a, a spouse, a parent, but that it made a difference to them. It gave them comfort, but also gave them hope that there was a way through it and that they didn't have to live in this loss of feeling like their life had been destroyed. I recognize that some people hold onto their grief as a way of um, become victimized and that we don't honor our loved one if we stop living we're still here breathing. And so what I, I've seen as sort of a, a trickle of consistency is that people said that hope helped me recognize that how I live now is how I honor my loved one. And that makes a difference. Oh, that's, I mean, that's so true. Wow. Uh, so, so powerful. Um, when you think about these stories and how people deal with grief, moving forward. Do you have a couple of tips for our listeners on how to handle grief, especially losing somebody really unexpectedly? Because sometimes we do expect them to pass. And we're well, ready. and that's true. Um, you know, it, it, grief is grief. And I think it's really important that we don't try to compare our stories with others. Um, so oftentimes people will think that they're helping you by telling how they handled the grief. And I, I came to the place of just saying, thank you for sharing. Um, I appreciate that and then honor myself. It's like you listen to yourself. What do I need? There is a very deep part of the grief journey that's about self-care. It's about nourishing myself. And it takes a lot of energy to process grief. So I notice that you're more fatigued. So what we eat, which is, you know, vibrational energy, really, it's like, right. is my food alive or is it junk food? Exactly. Because my body is going to need more to sustain me in this process. So I, I encourage people to, to do self-care, to honor yourself, to share what you feel like you can and can't do in a way that honors you, to take the time to let the tears flow. That's such a healing, cleansing way of not holding back. Just let it just come out. I, I coach people through this process I call regurgitating the pain. You know, if you need to scream, throw rocks, um, you know, do things that aren't destructive to others or the world around you, but just get it out. 
because otherwise it's going to interfere with how you can live from a healthy place. Invite others to be there for you if you feel you want the comfort, not the fixers, but the people that are good listeners, that'll just be there to love you. Allow that to be a part of the process and know that one day at a time, you will come out of the, the really raw, vulnerable stage and begin to discover that there's a space within you that will always contain your sorrow and your grief, but you come